0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from
1: HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan
0: Strickland. I'm an ordinary guy burning down the house.
1: Of course, you know, the quotes are usually longer, so I took a drink of water. I, <laughs> you were done by the time I. I know, and just I was, I was ready to see if you were getting ready to
0: spit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we wanted to talk about firefighting technology. We actually had a request come over Facebook for this, and we wanted to. Uh, I thought that was a good request. You know, it was an interesting concept. We also, I think, I got an email about it as well. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, we've had some some people inquire about the technology used in firefighting, and there's a, a wide range of tech that we can talk about some of it is uh stuff that is based off of technology that's been around for more than a century and some mm-hmm. of it is really like uh space age type stuff
1: yeah, yeah so definitely.
0: um uh i thought uh, i thought i'd start with one of the most um iconic uh images when you think about firefighting which of course is the fire engine or fire truck okay so uh uh, I actually live not too far from a fire station and by not too far I mean adjacent and uh <laughs> and so I get to see fire trucks a lot as mm-hmm. it turns out uh they're pretty cool things and uh of course you know the the main uh, uh I think the main uh, feature on a fire truck has to be the the water tank that that it holds Um, Right. You know, and and the water tanks, depending on the size of the truck, the water tank can be a different size as well. Like, you know, it's not unusual to find a fire truck that can hold a thousand gallons of water on its own. And of course, that's important because there's no guarantee that wherever the fire is, is going to be close to either a pool of water or uh, a fire hydrant. Um, So a, a fire truck has to be able to carry its own portable water supply, but Having water on a truck is not enough. You have to have a way of getting that water out.
1: Right. So you would need some
0: kind of pump. Yes. And uh, and fire engines have pumps. They have uh, impeller water pumps. And an impeller water pump is a diesel-powered pump. So it's got its own independent diesel engine. Mm-hmm. And it has a, a rotor-like device that's got some curved blades on it that spin in the water tank. Now, this actually slings the water around and starts to move it in a circular fashion. It builds water pressure. And you relieve that water pressure by allowing the water to escape through water lines, also known as hoses. So they have to go through a valve, and then it, it goes through the hose and at the whatever is burning thing.
1: <laughs> the whatever is burning thing? Yeah,
0: that's a technical term in the firefighting trade. So the whatever is burning thing gets uh, deluged with water. And uh, there's actually some interesting controls on this. There's a series of controls. There's a, a pump panel that allows you to either manually control the pumps or or some of them are automated. They have like a mastermind control system that actually does this automatically. But uh and a typical pump panel will have levers on it that allow you to direct where the water is going to go through, like which lines it's going to go through. And, of course, that's all going to depend upon which lines have been connected to the truck. And there are lots of different kinds of water lines also. And, again, when I say water lines, they're, those are essentially the fire hoses.
1: Right, yeah. These are a lot different from your garden variety hoses. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, because they can handle a whole lot more pressure and deliver a whole lot more water. As Jonathan was saying just a moment ago, you can't be certain that you're going to be right next to a fire hydrant where the fire is. And uh, the fire truck is going to park on the street. Now, if the building, uh, let's say it's a building, is burning and it's away from the street, you've got to have enough water pressure to get to uh, the fire itself. So yeah. the hoses are long. They're they're uh they've got some diameter on them, so you can really carry the uh a good amount of water, and they've got to be able to withstand a lot of pressure.
0: Yeah, and they're also they tend to be treated for uh, mildew resistance as well, because one of the big problems with uh, fire hoses before the mildew resistant um, uh, film was uh, developed. Was that you had to dry them out after you use them. Yes. Because otherwise you would have mildew develop, it would start to rot the hoses, and then the hoses would not be stable. You, you could have a hose rupture while you're trying to fight a fire because it's been weakened by mildew. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of elements that go into creating these, these hoses. And I've got a few different types that I can talk about. Um, there's usually a, there's a booster line which is uh, only about an inch diameter, and it's usually used for small fires, like uh, uh, a minor fire inside a a building or something like that, or a minor brush fire even. Uh Um, Then you've got the cross-lay hoses. These are the main hoses. These are like the workhorses of a fire engine. Uh, They're located below the pump panel, and they can pump up to 95 gallons of water per minute. Uh, they tend to be about 200 feet long and they've got a diameter of an inch and a half. Mm-hmm. So then you've got, uh, the pre-connect lines. So like I said, you know, you've got all these valves that are attached to the fire engine and they're on all the different sides of the fire engine because you never know where you're going to be able to orient the, the engine in relation to the fire. Normally there is, uh, there are at least three lines that are pre-connected when a engine rolls out of the station. So that way the fire fighters have a chance to immediately jump out of the truck and start fighting the fire uh, without having to fuss with unloading a hose, connecting it to the right valve, and then engaging the valve and fighting the fire that way. So pre-connect lines tend to be between an inch and a half to two inches in diameter, and they tend to be able to pump out around 250 gallons of water per minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got... Hoses that are designed specifically to hook up to hydrants, fire hydrants. Those are five inches in diameter. And a fire engine may carry up to a thousand feet of this hose, but it's in 100 foot segments. Uh, but there are also, uh, uh other shorter segments called curb jumper hoses. Mm-hmm. So let's say that the building, uh, that you need to get about 150 feet of hose, uh, to get to the, the fire. Uh, at whatever location you're at, and you're hooking it up to a hydrant, you might not want to grab two lengths of the hydrant hose. That's 200 feet, and you know you only need 150. Um, that that means you're going to have an extra 50 feet of hose that you're going to have to maneuver around. Well, these curb jumper hose segments are typically in lengths between 25, uh, like 25 foot lengths and 50 foot lengths. Mm-hmm. So that way, it's easier just to grab a smaller section so that you have a, enough length of hose to get to where you're going without having excess. Uh, then you've got your hose pack, which is a lighter hose. It's usually Mm -hmm. a smaller diameter. And this is what, uh, is used by firefighters if they have to go into a building and climb up levels. It has to be more portable. Uh, you've got the ladder line. Uh, you know, most of these fire engines have a really long ladder that's on the back of them. Well, there's a, there's a line that is part of that ladder. It's actually, it's, it's, uh, a, a direct connection to the ladder. It's
1: actually built in
0: yeah it 's built in and there is a, a um a nozzle at the top of the ladder that can uh, shoot out uh, well it's it's usually around three hundred gallons per minute so it 's a pretty powerful uh, hose and then you 've got your deluge gun or deck gun that 's what 's mounted on the top of the pump panel that 's the one that you know the, if you ever look at a fire engine and you see something that looks like a turret that 's on the fire engine yeah. that 's the thing i 'm talking about. All right, so we've been talking about hoses that can shoot out between 95 gallons and uh, 300 gallons of water. The deluge gun is no joke. We're talking a thousand gallons a minute. Wow. Yeah, and you may say, well, if you've got a <laughs> thousand gallons in the tank, does that mean that after a minute you've completely exhausted your water supply? And the answer is, well, yeah, if that's what you're if you were just using the water in the tank. But you can also hook up a a line to a um. Uh, a pool or lake or pond mm-hmm. and use that water to pump into the, uh, the, the various lines that you're using. Now, for that, they use a, um, uh, a, a, a strainer. It's a, it's called a barrel strainer. And that's what is used to filter out debris in ponds and pools and that kind of thing in order to be able to use that water to fight fires. Cause of course, if you get debris caught in the line, then you've, fouled the line you are you know in danger of losing the fight against the fire but uh
1: plus i imagine it would do quite a bit of costly damage to the equipment as well
0: sure yes all of that is is uh you know an important thing to remember when you are trying to to fight fires and then uh, there's also uh they tend to trucks tend to also carry foam Mm -hmm. and there's different kinds of foam Uh, that are, that's used for different types of fires. Usually, uh, a fire engine may only carry one type of foam, especially if it's, if it's in an area where, uh, fires are typically one type versus another. For example, a class A foam is uh, a kind of foam that's used to soak down an area after you've put out a fire to prevent reignition. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a flame retardant. And then you've got like class B foam. That's the stuff that you use to fight uh, flammable liquid fires. So like a car fire, you might want to use that because of the gasoline problem. Right. So uh and then the the other part about fire engines, they they are like mobile tool kits. Mm-hmm. So that's where all the fire fighting tools are, are mounted in that. And you may have some pretty low tech stuff in there. I mean, things like hooks and pikes that are used to tear down walls so that you can get at the places where the fire is to put the fire out. There's not a lot of tech there. Right. But then you may have something like a chainsaw. You know, chainsaws have that there's this, there's some tech there.
1: Mm-hmm. That's true. It's
0: pretty simple tech. It's usually, you know, a diesel engine that turns, turns the chain so that you can cut through stuff. Uh, but then there's also the, uh, a pretty famous tool, I would say, that you typically will find on a fire engine.
1: Yeah. And I think I know where you're going with this since you just mentioned it a moment ago. But yeah. I think, uh, it's important to remember before, while you're trying to guess what this famous tool is, yeah. that firefighters, um, these days, often do a lot more than fighting fires. They're yes. al- also responsible for uh, uh, doing some paramedic work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, they're first responders. So if someone is injured, they often call the, the firefighters out um, on the possibility that in addition to medical care, there might be um, a fire related to it, and they might need to do both things. Like, for example, as Jonathan was just pointing out, if you had a car wreck and uh, there's a possibility. That gasoline might spill and catch fire. So you have yep. someone trapped in a the car. Um, there's a possibility that there might be a fire. So who better to send than uh, firefighters who are trained in medical care? But the the trick is getting them out of the car before yeah. something bad happens.
0: Yes, and that's Worse where happens, that's where say. this uh, this tool comes in. It's called the Jaws of Life, and really Jaws of Life is actually a series of tools. It is not a single tool. Um, there's a company that makes. Uh, these tools, and the company is known as, uh, the Jaws of Life Company. Um, it actually has a full name, but it s- escapes my mind off, off the top of my head, but it's um, a, uh, not that kind. You still haven't seen that movie, have you? No, I have not. Yeah, we had someone ask us earlier. Um, no, he has not seen Jaws. So Jaws of Life is Those a, are the Jaws of Death. Yeah. Jaws of Life's, it's a hydraulically powered tool. Mm-hmm. And by that we mean it uses a fluid to create, uh, uh, pressure and move heavy duty tool elements Mm -hmm. and uh let's i guess a little digression on hydraulic would fluid would be a a good uh idea here sure so a hydraulic fluid is a fluid that is uh, typically it's it's not compressible it's incompressible and by that i mean you cannot squish it right right like most things that we think about there's a little squish factor but hydraulic fluid is supposed to be incompressible, and uh, that means that the fluid's at maximum density. You cannot cram the, the the molecules of that fluid any tighter than it already is. So if so, you put pressure on it, it's going to push.
1: Yeah, like if you have a, a, a cylinder filled with hydraulic fluid, and uh, you, you're trying to push a pr- press a piston into the cylinder, at, a, at the point where everything is connected, you have a you know, the solid cylinder at one end mm-hmm. and then the pre- the piston starts to push on it, there's a point at which the the piston is not going to be able to push anymore because it is it is compressed yeah. as far as it can go and it will not compress any further. And you can use that to do work.
0: Yeah, and there are plenty of tools that do use this. And uh, the Jaws of Life t- use uh, phosphate ester fluid. A lot of hydraulic fluid systems will use an oil-based fluid. As you can uh, imagine... Oil-based fluids are not necessarily the best thing to have in firefighting equipment.
1: I would imagine not.
0: Yeah. So phosphate ester is uh, non-flammable and non-conductive. So these hydraulic tools, the jaws of life, there are actually, like I said, a line of them. And the ones that are typically used in firefighting are cutters, which... Do what they sound like they do. They, they are designed to cut through stuff. So, for example, the body of a car.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: because the hydraulic pressure is such that it will cause the, the pinch, the, the, the cutting edges of this device to close at such a force that metal just crumbles. And then you've got spreaders. Spreaders are kind of like, you know, imagine a pair of pliers and you open them. That's kind of what spreaders are, are, Doing they you it's like pliers in reverse, yeah you shove of. shove it into a gap and then you start the hydraulic motor and or actually start the diesel motor, and that starts the hydraulic fluid uh it pushes the hydraulic fluid through and makes it do work, and that's what causes the uh the pincers to open and then you pop open whatever it is you were trying to open or it tears apart one one or the other, and then uh hydraulic rams, ah yes, so uh those are the three that are used the most frequently in firefighting uh uh scenarios so uh yeah it's kind of neat we actually have an article on how the jaws of life work and it goes into detail on each of those tools so if you want to learn more about it i do recommend that it's a very useful uh, resource and then uh, also I, I guess i should mention while we're talking about hydraulics the ladder on the fire trucks those are operated through hydraulics as well there's a, a piston that is uh it's got essentially two different hoses connected to it, and the hydraulic fluid will either cause the ladder to extend upward or to come back down. Mm-hmm. So, those are, that's your basic fire engine from, uh, from front to back. I mean, there's, there's a lot more we could talk about, but, uh, there's so much more firefighting technology. I didn't want to just have this all be about fire engines. Right, right. So, what do you want to talk about next?
1: Well, most of what I got is sort of uh, high-tech, cutting-edge type stuff. Um, one thing that that we should talk about probably um, to some extent, or maybe we could cover it later if you want to go with all the high-tech stuff now, is the uh, the stuff that the firefighters actually wear on their person themselves. Sure.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, because we just talked about fire engines, we should talk about the, the fire gear that the the uh, firefighters are wearing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this is they. They wear a lot.
1: Yes, they do. Um, of course, they have to uh, to try to stay protected from um, the heat. That's yeah. you know, it depends on what's burning. Of course, uh, some some different types of materials will burn hotter than other materials, um, and you certainly don't want to uh, have a firefighter go inside to rescue a person or to get at the source of a fire and have them. Uh, pass out from the heat or to, to be, uh, overcome by heat and smoke inhalation. Um, so you have to, you know, protect them externally and, and make sure that they, uh, they can breathe, uh, Mm -hmm. make sure that they could see and, and, you know, keep them as cool as possible. Um, one, one jacket that I read about that was really cool. It's actually called turnout gear, Uh um, which is a, uh, basically the, the heavy duty jacket that you might see them wear. It's actually from uh, a company called Viking. Um, but it's got thermal sensors built into the, the jacket itself. Oh, cool. Now, not, not, this is sort of, again, sort of cutting edge. Uh, but this, uh, this different thing, uh, has sensors on the outside, which change depending on there's an LED display,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um, on the jacket and it will tell you at, you know, at what point it is, going to be a a serious issue. The heat is going to be a serious issue. the heat
0: is going to be too hot for the suit's integrity. Yeah. And and the firefighter will be a danger.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, it it monitors what's going on outside and inside. Oh. So by looking at the firefighter, you know, another firefighter could say, look, you know, he's in danger right now being where he is and needs to get out of, of there because he may not be able to tell. Uh, what's going on? He may be so focused on fighting the fire right. that he may be ignoring a potentially dangerous situation for himself.
0: In the heat of the moment.
1: Yes. Apparently, when the outer temperature of, uh, where the fire is, uh, gets to about 482 degrees Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. um, the display, the LED display starts to flash and at 662 degrees Fahrenheit, um, it will start flashing very fast. Uh, I can't imagine being in anything that hot
0: it's interesting because well first of all you gotta know you know paper burns at Fahrenheit 451 yes but uh, I, I was true. gonna i was gonna say you know it's kind of interesting because if you look at the history of the heat resistant materials that firefighters have worn uh the the go-to material for quite some time was called nomex yeah mm-hmm. which is a fire resistant material it's similar to nylon it's kind of the same sort of uh uh, a feel of nylon, but it can withstand really intense heat. And it's a type of meta-aramid fiber, which really you just need to know that's a heat-resistant synthetic fiber that was developed in the lab. And, um, it's actually kind of, a, sort of a, a distant relative to, uh, Kevlar, um, which is a much more resilient, not necessarily heat-resistant, but physically resilient material. Mm-hmm. So, Nomex was the standard for a really long time. Uh, back in 1990, the Houston Fire Department partnered with NASA to develop a – originally it was just to develop a new helmet for firefighters. But then eventually through this partnership, NASA suggested that perhaps they could completely redesign the firefighter suit and they started to create suits that would circulate liquids within the the suit's lining in order to remove heat so that it would uh, protect the firefighter longer in in – intense heat conditions, because before that point, the the Houston firefighters were really only rated to go into uh, areas that were 300 degrees Fahrenheit or cooler. Um, afterward, they could go into areas that were 500 degrees Fahrenheit or cooler. And now you're talking about a system where you know it warns you at 482 which is right around that you know that 500 degree range that I was just talking about but it goes all the way up to 600 suggesting that th- this material is even more resilient than the stuff that was made back in 1990 with Na- NASA uh one of the other cool things that they added in that that same project where they were redesigning the helmet they created uh, improved two-way radio linkups in the helmets themselves yes and they also created a uh, infrared uh camera system so that you can so that the firefighter could switch to a thermal view and see hot spots in the house and also help firefighters identify uh if any victims were uh in the area so that they you know they could see the the heat from a person then they would know that they needed to uh to you know you might not be able to see because the smoke might be so thick And actually, infrared cameras play a really big role in firefighting technology across the board, not just in personal firefighter gear, but, for example, a helicopter flying over a wildfire might be equipped – in fact, most of them are equipped with infrared uh, cameras and infrared lenses so that they can – so uh, the pilot, or the well, it's not really the pilot, but a firefighter aboard the helicopter can look through and see the hot spots and see the flames, even if the smoke is so thick that you couldn't see anything, you know, just through a regular view to the ground. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry, that was a big digression, but you were uh, going back to the uh, cutting edge gear.
1: Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, we we can keep going with that because sure. um, uh I was reading an article on in Popular Mechanics about some of the different cutting edge firefighting tools. Um, some firefighters for, for things like, uh, scenarios like that, you're talking about a fire in the, in the wilderness, um, are using unmanned aircraft to monitor, uh, areas and using, um, infrared technology to identify places where, uh, you know, you can really concentrate on, uh, on fighting the fire. The thing is, um, we haven't really talked about it yet. It's on our list of things to do. But these unmanned aerial uh, vehicles can stay in the air far longer than uh, piloted, human piloted aircraft. They can stay in the air for uh, – well, the ones that they use in the, the military can use stay in the air for uh,
0: almost a day, I think, maybe even longer. And they can fly through thick smoke that a, a pilot, depending on the type of aircraft, may not be able to fly through because, you know, smaller aircraft – which is often what's being used to fight fires, uses a lot of line of sight uh, uh, navigational uh, techniques rather than flying by instruments. So if you're going to fly into an area that's that's got a really low visibility, uh, that's very dangerous for the pilot. So it's much more safe to use yes. a, a, a pilotless drone. I mean you've got – the person who's controlling it is controlling it from a, a – workstation as opposed to mm-hmm. in a cockpit. Um, th- yeah, did you come across the, the, I'm probably going to butcher this name because my Native American uh, languages are non-existent. Uh, Icona? Yes, I did. I-K-H-A-N-A. Yeah, it's a, it's a Predator B drone that NASA has, um, that is specifically designed to, to fly through areas that are, uh, either threatened by wildfires or actually currently in experiencing a wildfire. And it's got a lot of sensors on it that allow it to, Uh, to detect exactly the intensity and location of a fire to help firefighting uh, strategies.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't typically think of NASA as being a firefighting agency, but they have been partnering with the the United States Forest Service in developing this technology and working on ways to keep forest fires from getting out of control. Um, There's also moderate-resolution imaging spectroradiometer, or MODIS, Um, and basically that's a, uh, there are two satellites in orbit around the earth. Um, they're using instrumentation that can detect, uh, electromagnetic radiation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, and so basically over the course of a day or two, uh, MODIS is keeping an eye on, on the earth to look for, uh, radiation that would indicate where, where there's smoke and there's fire. Right. Um, and you can look at things like uh, – you can sort of overlay this with uh, areas of population density, areas of vegetation, things that might um, indicate that there is a serious imminent danger of, say, a fire spreading if it's going to get to a, a grassland or you know, coming close enough to an area of population density where you need to start evacuating people to keep them out of the way um, – You know, using satellite imaging is uh, a very sophisticated way of fighting fires because you can get a, a, if you'll pardon the uh, well worn expression, uh, the big picture view of what's really going on Mm -hmm. in a a fire of a size like that. Of course, that's a a much bigger fire than the ones we were. Starting out the podcast talking about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, NASA's done a lot of work with satellites and fire detection. I mean, back in 2003, that's when they started to, uh, to develop a software that would scan for, for fires. And then, uh, if a fire was detected, then NASA could direct a more powerful satellite to look at that area specifically. There's also the Landsat 7. Uh, satellite, which is designed to detect moisture levels in, in forested areas to determine likely spots where wildfires could form because of course a wildfire is more likely to form in a very dry area. Uh, those conditions are um, are are prime for a wildfire because you 've got a lot of dry fuel and then if there 's any wind, then that 's going to spread that fire around very quickly in that area so mm-hmm. that's that 's sort of the purpose of landsat seven is just to Kind of identify potential spots where a wildfire could develop with the right conditions. I mean, obviously, you're going to have to have something that's going to spark the fire.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also read about uh, in um, in Popular Mechanics about some software developed by the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center um, called Prometheus.
0: Yeah. Uh, no. nice. The bringer of fire. Yes,
1: exactly. In this case, it's actually designed to identify the likelihood of fire before it actually starts to burn. Yep. Uh, very, a very cool idea. Um, basically using, it's sort of like, if you think about it, it's sort of like, uh, meteorological models. Mm-hmm. They're taking environmental factors into account, um, ecological factors and, and looking at those to, to, Get an idea of the likelihood of a forest fire starting and spreading, so they can kind of keep an eye on on that before it even really uh, a conflagration starts. Um, ah,
0: excellent! Th- thank you. Speaking of much. meteorological equipment, uh, actually, a lot of well, fire stations tend to have a lot of meteorological equipment uh, actually on the station, mounted on the station. Because, you know, firefighters need to know this information. If, if mm-hmm. humidity is high, then they know that the fire is going to spread more slowly than if it were a dry day. Um, it, they need to know what the wind speed and direction is because that's going to affect how they attack a fire. It also will affect how a fire might spread. So – a lot of weather equipment is uh you know you'll find a lot of weather equipment attached to your typical fire station so and you know that way they have the most up to date information available before they go out to uh, to fight a fire
1: mhm mhm um you want to hear about a couple other Cutting edge tools sure. that I ran into. Yeah, the two
0: I've got that I wanted to talk about are kind of future p- potential applications.
1: Yes. Did you run across the controlled impact rescue impact rescue tool? No. Uh, this is something. If you've heard of the company uh, Raytheon, you probably yes. associate them with defense technology and microwave ovens. Um, but among other things, many many other things. Uh, but uh, the uh, this is sort of uh, high end. Weapons grade firefighting technology. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at a concrete wall and you need to get inside because there's a fire on the other side and you've, you've absolutely got to do this, getting through that's going to take you a long time using conventional tools. So, um, this is a prototypical tool or we, at least it was in, uh, at the time this, the article I'm used as a source is written. Um, it uses blank ammunition cartridges and fires those into the wall to make the wall crumble. Just from the, the shock waves of firing the blanks into the wall. Um, it, the equipment weighs about a hundred pounds, which means that you've got to have two firefighters carrying the equipment up there. But, uh, it doesn't require any electricity. You know, it's, it's essentially a, um, a gun. Um, but you can use the, the device to basically pound your way through a thick concrete wall a lot faster than you could if you were trying to use a jackhammer or electric saw.
0: I can easily see a fictionalized version of that weapon being used in video games from here on out. Oh sure.
1: Um, and then, uh, did you read
0: anything about using electricity
1: to fight fires? Yes,
0: yes. Uh, that is one of the ones that I wanted to talk about. Uh, over in Harvard University, some researchers discovered something interesting. They found that uh, you know it's been known that that fi- flames will react to an electric field mm-hmm. for quite some time. But what the, the researchers at Harvard University found was that by using a variable electric field, which means they were using alternating current, uh, to go, uh, to travel across a wire, uh, they would create this variable electric field. They would direct it toward a flame and they discovered that it would snuff a flame out. And the, the, what was at work here was that the, um, the, the, variable electric field was actually exerting force on charged particles within the flame itself. Mm -hmm. Probably,
1: probably carbon particles from what I read.
0: Yeah. And it, and it's pushing those particles away from the fuel source. So it's literally pushing the, uh, the flame off the fuel. So it snuffs it out, you know, and the fuel, the rest of the fuel remains unburned. Uh, but this is, um, this is just a small kind of uh, laboratory setting, uh, that, Yeah, it's not a, it's not a, like a field test. And moreover, this sort of application is really going to be useful for small confined spaces. Mm -hmm. So any place where a fire might break out in a, a tiny area, like let's say it's a, a, a compartment in a ship, like a Navy vessel. Okay. And it's down below decks and you have a fire breakout. Well, this could be a good way to contain that fire, to snuff out that fire quickly. Um, and you, you know, that, you've got, a again, a pretty confined space in that when you're working with that. If you're talking about something like a, a house fire mm-hmm. or a wildfire, this approach is not necessarily going to be very effective. So it's not like we can just ma- make a massive electric wand pointed at California and say, you're done.
1: No more <laughs> fires for you.
0: Right. It's not going to happen that way. Plus, a lot of people are going to be mad that their tiki torches just went out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank you.
1: But yeah, you could use it to, uh, um, to escape a fire if you were in this situation. They, uh. That's
0: a good point. Yeah, you can make a lane.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, article I read on it basically said if you were a firefighter inside a building and there were a wall of fire in front of you, you could, you know, create an escape route for yourself by using this on a, on a small area. Uh, enough to, to get through and, and to the other side safely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You wouldn't be able to necessarily put out the fire, but you could at least create an avenue to get out of that situation.
1: Or it could be used as a, uh, sort of to augment a sprinkler system, um, mounted on the ceiling so that you could, you know, use that on a, a small area within a building, which would be kind of interesting. I don't know. It would sort of depend on the type of equipment the, uh, that you were working with. And and if you, you had something like electronic equipment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you gotta remember problem. that you're generating an electronic electric field, you're not shooting lightning out the end of something. So yeah. that is something to remember. It's not like you're blasting stuff with lightning and then the fire goes out. That's it's that'd be cool. <laughs> but it's not what's happening. Did you read about uh using acoustic waves to put out flames? No, I didn't. Alright, so this is another one of those things where it's an idea that could have potential, but uh but it's gonna take some more tests and some more uh, experimentation to really find out if it's if it's a worthwhile pursuit. Okay. The idea is that you use um, acoustic waves, so sound, to snuff out flames. And there were some early experiments done, mostly by students, really like science students, mm-hmm. college level and even lower, where they would use a really sort of a low-frequency sound, like we're talking about in the 40 hertz frequency range. Wow. And boost it up really powerfully. And you and when brought close to a flame, the flame would go out. And uh, the idea is that we might be able to use this kind of technology in areas where there's uh, uh, zero gravity, for example, a space station. Mm-hmm. So if a fire broke out in a space station, that would be catastrophic. It's also really unusual because, you know, flames behave in a in a really odd way in outer space. Mm -hmm. And it's because of the lack of gravity. So instead of a, you know, a teardropped shaped flame that you might see on a candle here on earth in space, it's round because Mm -hmm. there's no up and there's no down. There's no, you know, the heat doesn't go up. The heat just stays where it is and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And it does, but yeah, heat doesn't travel. It doesn't go outward. There's no, (laughs) it it, which is kind of hard to get your head around, but, uh, it's also in the outer space in a, in a place like the space station, using water is not terribly effective either mm-hmm. um it doesn't behave the same way in a zero g environment using foam is really messy and and dangerous uh potentially dangerous as well so that's why they're looking at various alternatives to using a physical substance um what really the the basis of, of fighting fires up to this point has been chemical're
1: mm-hmm. you're, yeah.
0: you're, you're aiming at the fuel and you're trying to put out the the flame that way um, this is more of a physical way of fighting fire you're physically finding a way to remove the flame from the fuel and thus snuff it out mm-hmm. and both the electric field and the acoustic wave methods fall into that category well I'm I'm tapped out do you have anything else you want to add before we sign off no but I think
1: you know, it, and over the course of talking about these things, there there are other firefighting technologies we didn't talk about. Sure, so we might. It,
0: we might I know, come I might,
1: back and revisit. I'm interested in maybe revisiting it in the future. I do also want to point out that um, uh, you know all these technologies are very important to people who are very important to us because they help protect us. And, yeah. uh um, just want to send our thanks. You know, oh yeah, if I may speak for you uh, to the firefighters of the world for uh, for looking out for all of us because you have a very difficult job.
0: Um- yeah, it, the 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 training regimen alone to become a firefighter is one of the most difficult things I've read about. I mean, yeah. it's it's up there with you know the the elite military training in a way. I mean, and they have to go through some pretty intense situations just to get to the point where they're putting their lives at risk to help you. So, yeah, my hat is off to the firefighters out there. Absolutely. Thank you, men and women of the various firefighting uh, agencies. Um, So that wraps it up for this discussion. If you guys have any specific fields of technology you would like us to tackle, let us know. You can let us know on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is techstuffhsw, or you can send us an email. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon.